adrenaline that comes from being in an adversarial relationship with somebody else, and, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting to long for peace and yet never feel like we quite get to where we're longing to go. Uh, there's a social cost to unresolved conflict. Uh, the, the creators of the Myers-Briggs Personality Instrument did a study a few years ago and found that U.S. employees spend roughly three hours a week dealing with either personal or professional conflict on the clock, which if you make $18 an hour amounts to $359 billion in lost productivity. I mean, think about just in the last couple months, uh, the time wasted or diverted by you uh, having to think about or deal with either a conflict that you're in or a conflict in your workplace between coworkers where you're just, you know, walking on eggshells. And it captures your imagination and and, and, and it makes you unproductive. 25% of employees in that same study said that they've been absent from work before because of uh, not wanting to deal with conflict. Uh, 10% of uh, people reported projects failing because of conflict between uh, teammates. And a third of people, a third of people leave companies because of conflict to go to another company. So there's massive social costs. It's somewhat of a, a public healthcare crisis, unresolved conflict. Uh, Dorit uh, Rabinian, she uh, grew up in the Middle East and wrote this great uh, book recently called Border Life. It's a story about an Israeli-Palestinian uh, forbidden romance and kind of that becoming a metaphor for Israeli-Palestinian relationships. And she says this in the book, the great line, she says, our longing for peace is matched by our fear of peace. Our longing for peace is matched by our fear of peace. There's something about being human, she's saying, that makes us long for peace. And whatever, however you define peace, there's this deep, deep desire to experience the fruit of peace and harmony and unity in your soul and in the relationships around you. I don't know if you saw this week, uh, NBA on TV, or last week, uh, week before last, ran a special, and it was so powerful to watch Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas reconcile on TV. I don't know if you guys saw that. It is worth the two minutes. I've never seen anything like it on TV. Unscripted. If you know anything about magic, I know that we're, uh, you know, Pacers, you know, fans here. But if you know anything, I grew up in the 80s watching Pacers, Celtics, Bulls, uh, Pistons, and you know that magic and and uh, Isaiah had this long-standing friendship that kind of fueled this, this competitiveness between them. And that same competitiveness eventually fueled uh, that fueled the friendship, eventually set the friendship on fire, and they had this huge falling out. And for two decades, they basically haven't spoken to each other. Magic wrote an autobiography where he basically just, just trashed Isaiah in this autobiography. And on camera, Isaiah was the one now sent to do this documentary on Magic Johnson's life and on his reemergence uh, in, uh, in basketball. And in the interview, both of them literally stop, and they stare at each other, and they begin to weep. And, and they both get up, unscripted again, walk across the room, and begin to hug and embrace. And it, it, it was sappy. It almost seemed scripted. Like, it, it kind of felt like, but it was, it was this just powerful moment. And I think, if we're honest, like, we long for those kinds of reunions, especially to watch two men be vulnerable like that, to weep. I mean, I'm talking ugly crying on national television, two men reconciling in a long-term feud. We long to experience peace, and yet, very, often, very seldom do we actually rally together and, and experience peace together. Like the only time, think about film, the only time that Americans rally like internationally is to fight aliens. 
Like the best blockbuster movies are all people rallying together to fight, you know, alien and, aliens invading. Uh, or to, you know, maybe to fight like the Germans. We're always uniting as Americans to fight Germans, right? But like there's very seldom do we, do we see uh, the coming together and making of peace. And I think it's because we fear peace. Peace is kind of boring. We long for peace. We fear peace. And I think the reason that we fear peace is because without conflict, what would our identity be? Being against something together creates a shared identity. It's us versus the world. It's us versus the liberals. It's us versus the conservatives. It's us versus, you know, the international scene. Like, it it creates this shared identity. And without, without our enemies, without our foils, who would we be? Think of the story of Jonah. When Jonah goes to preach to Nineveh, God calls him and he tries to run away and God continues to pursue him and he eventually goes and he preaches the good news of God's coming kingdom to the Ninevites. And this ugly, nasty, brutal empire repents. And what does Jonah do? He goes out into the desert and he pouts. He gets under a plant and he says, I, God, I knew you would be gracious. I knew that you would be merciful. I knew that if I preached, you would draw them back to yourself. And many of us are like Jonah. The pursuit of peacemaking, it's a vulnerable thing because it makes us vulnerable to the reality that the other party may actually repent, that there's actually redemption for those people that we've turned into caricatures and stereotypes, and we've made assumptions about them. It opens us to the reality that we might be wrong. Like, if I go back and reconcile, maybe I'll find out something about myself that I don't want to know or that I've closed myself off to. Or the other party may repent and be redeemed, and that would just be terrible to actually see them flourishing. Because my identity for a long time has been, I'm not them. I'm better than them. Pete Scazzaro, a pastor in New York City, wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality that we've talked about quite a bit. Went through a series last summer on what it looks like to be whole emotionally as human beings. And here's what he writes about his own experience. He says, many of us This is hard because we've not really seen it lived out. We've not grown up in families where uh, peacemaking has been modeled for us. And he says, very, here's what he says, very, very few of us come from families where conflicts are resolved in a mature and healthy way. Most simply bury our tensions and move on. In my own family, when I became a Christian, I was the great peacemaker. I would do anything to keep unity and love flowing in the church as well as my marriage and family. I saw conflict as something that had to be fixed as quickly as possible. Like radioactive waste from a nuclear power plant, if not contained, I feared it might unleash terrible damage. So I did what most Christians do. I lied a lot, both to myself and to others. So we've, many of us, not experienced family life that teaches us what it looks like to deal with conflict. The family, I believe, is supposed to be an incubator for peacemaking. It's supposed to teach us what it looks like to extend forgiveness, to receive forgiveness, to practice a way of being in the world that is not using force and coercion to get our way to keep a superficial, temporary facade of peace, but rather to experience deep reconciliation and restoration. And yet, what we saw, we did a health survey a few months ago for those of you who are here, and what we found was that a lot of us grew up in families that were nominally religious. And what I mean is, you went to church on the holidays, you did the rituals, you sang some of the songs, you attended the confirmation classes, you went through the motions, but at home, there was a huge disconnect between what was being taught on Sunday and what was being lived out Monday to Saturday. And so, everybody's cool, you know, in the van on the way to church, 
But when we get home and we begin to live our lives, there's no model of peacemaking. We've never been taught what it looks like to resolve tension, to resolve anxiety in healthy, productive, God-honoring, biblical ways. Oftentimes, what we're taught, or if we're just kind of going along with the flow of our, of our hearts and our desires, because it's not all just what we learn, some of this is just inside of us, and it comes out and it spills out like sewage into our relationships. When we think of what peacemaking is not, or maybe false peace that we've learned from others around us, there's, there's some substitutes, there's some counterfeits. One is peace faking. Peace faking, which means you're the kind of person who likes to avoid conflict. Peace at all costs, right? You, you don't want to make waves, so you appease others. You don't speak your mind. You don't talk. You just let conflict kind of sit out there, and you think, if I just ignore it, it'll go away. Time heals all wounds, which is not true, by the way. But like that's at least the thing we tell ourselves is if we just let it die down, if we just let it diffuse, there's always another opportunity. We punt peacemaking down the field a little bit, and we say, well, I'll get to that later. I don't want to deal with that right now. I'll deal with that later. And we don't deal with it, and we don't deal with it, and we don't deal with it. And then what happens? There's an explosion over Thanksgiving dinner, over Christmas dinner, right? At the most inopportune time. And what happens is, it's not that the explosion, sometimes you're like, how did that happen? It just, that, like, it's like Will Ferrell, that, es- that escalated quickly. But the reality is, there was a thousand little erosions along the way. It wasn't really an explosion, it was more of an implosion. It was just a bunch of small erosions, a bunch of times where you made the choice to not deal with that conflict, to not deal with that, that grievance. You nurtured that grievance in your heart, but you did not deal with it with your lips in your life. And then things blow up. Some, some of us peace fake by denying the reality of conflict. We click our heels and we say, there's no place like home, no place like home, no place like home. Everything's fine. Everything's great. How are you? Awesome. Life is good. Right? Like we pretend as if everything's okay. Some of us just run away from conflict. We isolate ourselves. We, we cut off. And that's why we're always moving from church to church, from city to city, from friendship group to friendship group, because we're afraid to deal with conflict. It's as simple as that. Some of us demonize other people. That's how we peace fake. And so we turn them into caricatures. You know what a caricature is? Like that guy at the state fair, that woman at the state fair, that takes a flaw in you, and they exaggerate it, and they turn it into a portrait. That's what we do with other people. We take something that's a flaw or a weakness that we see in them that gets exposed and we make it the defining feature. Then it's a lot easier once we've demonized them to not have to reconcile with them because they're a spawn of Satan, clearly. So some of us are peace fakers. Others of us are peace breakers. We're, we're like, bring it. You, you like conflict. You enjoy conflict. And, and you put it under the, under the guise of, I just, I'm the kind of person, this is just the way that I am. This is the way that I'm wired. I'm going to speak my mind. And you enjoy speaking your mind, quote unquote, to everyone around you, right? Like you've never had a thought that you thought twice about, right? Like rarely in doubt, always confident. And so you, you throw your thoughts out there. You, you, uh, you use control. Sometimes you get violent, either verbally or physically with people, um, you, you run towards conflict, you litigate, you sue, you drag people into court, um, you're, you're always aggrieved and you have your list of offenses and you're protecting your rights. I mean, all of this kind of language that we're familiar with. Um, some of us do it through gossip, 
We, we peace break by gossiping. We, we back channel instead of dealing directly with other people. We do uh, what like therapists call triangulate. You know what triangulation is? I have a beef with you, but instead of dealing with you, I'm going to pull in a third party because it's easier for me just to lay it out on them than to deal directly with you because I'm afraid, uh, because I'm so self-preoccupied. I'm so worried about losing the relationship or what it might cost me to have this conversation. I pull in my sister. I pull in, if you're a middle child, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've been pulled in and triangulated and if you think about like your, your workplace, it's just a bunch of like interlocking triangles of conflict where people are back-channeling and gossiping. And, and th- it helps so much, right, when you triangulate? I mean, it's just like all the anxiety goes away. Everybody's happy. Everybody's reconciled. No, it escalates anxiety. It's like filling a room full of gas. And then it just takes a spark to light the whole thing on fire. It's not easy to be peacemaker. It's much easier. Like the way of the world, the way of many of our families is just to pursue peace faking or peace breaking, not peacemaking. Jesus lamented this fact in his own city. This is not anything new, right? Like Freud didn't invent this. This is, this goes back a long time. Jesus says in Luke chapter 19 verse 42, when he drew near and he saw the city, he saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus is a way of being in the world that leads to peace, that was foreign even to the religious people of his day, and he weeps. See, conflict and unresolved conflict breaks the heart of God. God weeps over our inability to make peace with each other because he's a God of peace. So what does it look like for us if we're gonna if we're gonna try to live in the way of Jesus, if we're gonna try to live into this vision of the beautiful life, the, the beatitudes, the beautiful life, the life of God's kingdom, his rule and his reign breaking into this world, and us being a, a foretaste, an outpost, a city on a hill, what does it look like for us to be a community of peacemakers? This is at the heart, by the way, of what Jesus came to do. This is at the heart of who Jesus was and, and what he came to do in the world is to make us a community of peacemakers, to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to one another. And before we move out into the world and, and, and figure out what that looks like for us to be peacemakers in our neighborhoods and in D.C. <clears throat> and in Hollywood, we have to let peace make us. Before we can be peacemakers, we have to let peace make us. And specifically, we have to let the peace of Jesus move towards us, make us, remake us, reorient us, recalibrate us to a different way of being in the world. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And notice Jesus Jesus doesn't say, you'll become sons of God by being peacemakers. He says you'll become a peacemaker by being a son of God. And that order is absolutely critical because you're never going to do this. You're never going to nail this perfectly. But to be a son of God, to, to have that characteristic, we'll talk about that in a second, is to be a peacemaker. And to be a peacemaker is to be a son of God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Our English definitions of of peace are really lacking, really paltry. When we think of peace, we think of 
the absence of war. She's like, that's a really high bar. Way to go, world. You know, like, the absence of war, the absence of conflict, the absence of nuclear threats and retaliations. But peace is something bigger than that in the Bible. This rich Hebrew word, shalom. Listen to what one commentator says about this definition of peace. We can almost translate the key word peacemaker with the word whole maker. Peace in scripture is a situation of comprehensive welfare. In English, the word peace usually refers to an, either an inner tranquility, a peace of mind, or to an outward state, the absence of war. But biblical shalom conveys the picture of a circle. It means communal well-being in every direction, in every relationship. The person in the center of the circle, so it's relational, the person in the center of the circle is related justly to every point on the circumference of the circle. Another way to put it, it sounds kind of weird, is blessed are the circle makers, for they will be called sons of God. Think of a hub a sp- and a, bi- a bicycle t- wheel. In the hub, to be a peacemaker is to be at the center, working and cooperating with God, to be rightly connected and rightly ordered in every domain and every relationship in God's world. Because what is a structure? Like we talk about unjust structures. It's, it's a system of relationships that have gotten disordered. And then embedded into policies and and procedures and laws that are unjust. To be justly related means I'm in right relationship with these things. I'm I'm experiencing shalom. I'm cooperating with God, right with God, and then right with myself, right? Because I have to be at peace with myself and then then at peace with the world. It's, It's like a hub with spokes moving out in every direction in all these different domains and relationships. I am learning what it looks like to line myself up with God's vision of comprehensive thriving. But it starts by acknowledging that oftentimes the problem is us. Before we can make peace with the world, we have to experience that peace. We have to be made by peace before we make peace. We have to receive peace before we can give peace. Deep inside our soul, Thomas Merton Trappist Monk, in his book, The Living Bread, says this, the whole problem of our time is the problem of love. How are we going to recover the ability to love ourselves and to love one another? The reason why we hate one another and fear one another is that we secretly or openly hate and fear our own self. And we hate ourselves because the depths of our being are a chaos of frustration and spiritual misery. Lonely and helpless, We cannot be at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we cannot be at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. We're not at peace with God. Therefore, we're not at peace with ourselves. Therefore, we are not at peace in our world. The Bible says that by nature, as sinners and sufferers, we are at war with God. And some of us don't like to think of it that way. We think, well, I'm not like mad at God. I'm not like picking up, taking up arms and like, you know, at war with God. I'm just apathetic. I'm indifferent. I'm a doubter, I, you know, whatever. But here's the thing. Let God cross your will and you'll see how at war you are with him. Let, let God not let your dreams come true. Let you not get that job. Let you not get that promotion. 
let you get that negative report from the doctor, and who's the first person you go shaking your fist at and swearing off? It's God. We're all at war with God. We have this fundamental hostility in our relationship with God, and that hostility gets embedded in our soul, and it radiates out into our relationship. It infects. It's like a virus. It's like a T-cell. It metastasizes from the soul and the heart into every relationship in our lives. And so Jesus says, blessed are you, peacemaker, you will be called sons of God. What does it mean to be blessed as a peacemaker? What does it mean to be called a son of God? It means we are blessed, happy are you, the word is, fortunate are you, the Bible says, Jesus is saying, because peace is here. Peace has come among you. The reign and the rule of God has invaded this space right here right now, in the person and work of Jesus. We're blessed because peace has drawn near to remove our hostility and not just to remove our hostility, but to fill us with the presence and the power of God's love. Peace isn't just negative. It's not just the absence of something. Have you ever thought about that? It's the presence of something more potent and more full and more real. That's the expulsive power of God's peace. He so fills us with his love, with his kindness, with his mercy, that it drives out hostility. He removes our hostility, and he fills us with himself. God is peace. He is the author of peace. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Peacemaking could be defined as the active work of bringing God's shalom to places and people mired in hostility. That means we look out into the world, we look into our own souls first, we look out into our family, we look out into our community and we say, where is their hostility? Where is their bitterness? Where is their resentment? Where is their unforgiveness? Where are people languishing in hostility? I'm gonna move towards that space, not away from that space. I'm gonna engage that darkness with the light of Jesus. Think about the work of a doctor. If you're in the medical field, you move into the space of the hostility of warring factions within the body, cells, and all kinds of processes that I don't understand uh, that are happening in the body to bring peace, to bring unity and conformity to the laws of nature. What are you doing in social work? What are you doing in education? What are you doing in law? These are all analogies for what Christ came to do ultimately. To take two warring parties, us and God, and to reconcile us and to make us friends. To give us peace with God. That's why Jesus came. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We sing about this every Christmas with Charlie Brown. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. A new administration coming to bring God's justice and his righteousness and his peace into the world, starting with our hearts, reordering our loves and our desires and our longings and our our being, and then teaching us what it looks like to live as an outpost to his kingdom of peace and his world of love. But Jesus does it in a different kind of way than many expect. Jesus doesn't come riding in as the Jews expected him on some horse as a general to overthrow the Roman Empire. Matthew 10, verses 34 to 35, Jesus says, I've come 
to divide. I've not come to bring bring peace, but to bring a sword. I've come to divide mother and father and brother and sister and nations and tribes. See, the kind of peace that Jesus brings brings conflict. Isn't that weird? Like Jesus says we're supposed to be peacemakers, and then he says, I've come to bring the sword. What he's saying is when you make a decision for me, when you give your allegiance to me, when my peace comes into your life, it will put you at odds with the world. It will put you at odds in your own family because you're transferring your greatest allegiance away from yourself and away from your people to me. And that's gonna put you at odds with your government. That's gonna put you at odds with your parents sometimes. That's gonna put you at odds with your children at times, with your church at times. Jesus says, this is my peace. This is what I came to do. John 14, 27. I've come to give you peace, but not the way the world gives it. How does the world give peace? Jesus was born into a day when Caesar Augustus was called the Prince of Peace. He was called the Son of God. He was called the bringer of world peace. How did Rome bring peace? Through violence, through coercion, through force, through the military-industrial complex. Their peace was get with Rome's program or bleed and die. That's the kind of peace that Jesus is coming up against. And he's saying, my kingdom is not like that. It's not a kingdom of coercion. It's not a kingdom of violence. Because here's the truth. Does that ever produce lasting peace? No. It scatters. It doesn't gather. People, you know, violence just creates more violence. It multiplies enemies. And it vanquishes the opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation. If I kill you, it's over and done. There's no opportunity for reconciliation. That's why Jesus looked at Peter the night he was arrested. Do you remember what happened on the night Jesus was arrested? They came to get him, and Peter takes out his sword, and what's he do? Force, coercion, violence, the way of Caesar Augustus, fight for your rights. Slices off one of the guard's ears. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 put your sword up. Those who live by the sword perish by the sword. Don't you think, he says to Peter, that I can't call thousands of angels much more powerful than you, Peter, and wipe out these things if that's why I came? He says, no, that's not why I came. I came to bring peace. I came to die for peace. I came to bring redemption to these very people who are arresting me tonight. Ephesians 2, we read that verse earlier. Jesus tears down the wall of hostility, reconciling warring parties. He removes the anger. He removes the bitterness. He removes the superiority and the inferiority between the Jews and the Gentiles that kept them apart. And in his body, literally in his flesh, he holds together God's love and God's wrath, and he brings justice, and he offers peace. Colossians 1 says, by the blood of his cross. It was a bloody, self-sacrificing expulsive power of substitution that brought and purchased peace for us. It was a costly peace. It was not a fake peace. It was not a cheap peace. It was the blood of the Son of God himself who came to initiate and to be present with us and to sacrifice for us, to disrupt our false peace and to give us God's peace. Galatians chapter five, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. When we become believers in Jesus, he puts his peace in us. And he calls us to live as his sons. 
That's why he says you'll be called sons of God. That's not gender insensitive. What it means to be a son is to share the characteristic. In the ancient world, this is a Hebrew idiom to express the idea that we are to share the characteristics of our heavenly father who is himself peace. So to be a son of God is to be a peacemaker. To be a peacemaker is to be recognized by both God and the world as sons of God. To be in the family business, cooperating and collaborating with God to bring peace to dark places and relationships full of hostility and resentment and bitterness. So Jesus moves towards us to make peace in us because we're at war with God. And then he sends us out into the world to move toward hostile people and places to make peace. Now, what does it look like? What does that look like practically for us to make peace? Some have argued that you could actually see in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus' answer to what it means to be a peacemaker. Because notice what he goes on to talk about. He says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill to show the world what peacemaking is supposed to look like. That's what we're doing, not just playing church with smoke and lights and, and cameras and building platforms and, and, and just baptizing and co-opting materialism and consumerism. What does it mean to be the people of God? It means to be a shining light, to be a beautiful light in a world of darkness, not in a self-righteous way like the Pharisees, but it, with poverty of spirit, right? Let's all the Beatitudes go together. With poverty of spirit, with mourning, with purity of heart. We're a shining light. And notice what he goes on to talk about, anger. You want to talk about peace? You've got to talk about anger. What do you do with your anger? We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. How do you keep anger from exploding into murderous rage? He goes on to talk then about lust, about degrading each other by, by looking at each other and lusting after each other. He talks about divorce. He talks about keeping our word and our oaths. He talks about retaliation and enemy love and, and not judging and taking the log out of your own eye before you uh, see the speck in somebody else's. What's he talking about with all this? Peacemaking. He's talking about peacemaking. This is what it looks like to be a peacemaker. Jesus is so earthy and so practical, and we make it so complicated. It's really not. It's very practical. It's the day in and day out ways of being in the world together. It's our public life together. It's not who you, just who you vote for for president. Like, we spend so much time worrying about that. But let's talk about how you're dealing with your intimate relationships. Let's talk about your friends, your families, your neighbors, the poor that are around you. Let's talk about racial reconciliation in your everyday life. Those are the spaces where God wants us to be peacemakers. You see, to make peace, we need a new heart, but we also need new habits, right? Like, you could have a new heart without new habits and a new way of being in the world. We call that hypocrisy, right? Like, you have a new heart, and you, you're at peace with God, but, like, you've got a falling out. Like, you're, you're just, your life is like a, it's, it's like a Hiroshima, you know? Like, all around you, there's just radioactive collateral damage church that you're in, the small group that you're in, the relationships you can't, make, you can't make and keep friends for very long, right? But you got peace with God. That's new heart without new habits. Some of us, though, pursue new habits without a new heart. 
We try to be peacemakers. You know what that's a recipe for? Burnout, exhaustion. Because if there's no new heart fueling your peacemaking, it's impossible. Like Romans 12, 18, and as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. What that means is there are times when you can't make peace and it's going to drive you crazy. And you're going to try and you're going to try and you're going to try and you just feel like you're hitting a brick wall. That kind of white-hot activism has a shelf life if it's not fueled by a new heart that's been made at peace with God. So what does it look like to do that? Why I can't give you all the ins and the outs of this. I mean, that would be like a whole seminar on how to be a peacemaker and the practicals, but I do want to just take you to a case study that Jesus gives us later on in Matthew, and then I want to close our time. Matthew chapter 18, in the midst of his disciples arguing with each other and, and at war kind of in a sense with each other because they were always fighting. And so Jesus' words are always practical. This isn't some laboratory. Jesus is not an ethics philo- you know, uh, philosopher or a, 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 a professor just throwing out like abstract ideals. Um, you know, like this is Jesus in the grittiness of real life with people that are actually fighting. And he's giving them advice on how to be peacemakers. Matthew chapter 18, I encourage you to turn there if you have your Bible, starting in verse 15. What does it look like for us to make peace? Because peace is active. It's not loving peace. It's not desiring peace. It's not aspiring towards peace. It's not writing beautiful prose about peace. It's not painting uh, on a canvas about peace. That word is peacemaking, peace doing. What does that look like? Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between him and you alone. He's talking about two Christians. When your brother, when your sister sins against you, so let me just say a couple things about that. One, Christians, we got to get our junk together before we worry about everybody else. Before we're worried about politicians and calling out Hollywood and the latest scandal and what's happening on the news cycles, we got to worry about us. We don't have a great track record. We've got crusades. We've got civil wars. We've got racial oppression in our past. So he says, before you worry about going out into the world to be a peacemaker, make sure that you are right in your relationships with other people. Make sure that you're working for peace in those relationships closest to you because those are the hardest in your community, in your church. If your brother sins against you, notice he doesn't say if he annoys you. If you don't like what they post on Instagram, if you're sensitive and defensive, you know, and everybody's always offending you. He doesn't say if he offends you. If, if you're offended, Proverbs says you should overlook it. If he sins against you, that means you better come with a Bible verse. You've sinned against me. We need to talk. And it's not a one-time thing. You're not uh, a referee, you know, walking around with your whistle in your mouth. You did this, you did this, you did this. I mean, you are an exhausting person to be around. If that's you, you are an exhausting, you are an energy vampire. You just suck the life right out of everyone around you because you're always calling fouls while naively missing your own. If he sins against you, go and tell him his fault. You alone, hey man, can we have coffee? I'm noticing a pattern here. Like, that's why God gives us community to help expose those patterns in our lives that we otherwise wouldn't be vulnerable. We call them blind spots for a reason. You're blind to them. 
No, I didn't do that. That's the point. You don't see it. I am the worst. My wife tells me all the time, you are so defensive. I am not defensive. Oh, okay. I get it. We need community around us because what do we want to do? We want to project strength. We want to act like we have it all together. What do we like to show? That's why we like social media. We love Instagram and Facebook. Why? Because we can show people the highlight reels. Da-na-na, na-na-na. Look at how awesome I am. Look at how amazing my life is. Look at how beautiful my kids are. Look at this thing that I just painted. You know, like, look at this trip that I just want to. We show people the highlight reels. When was the last time somebody ugly cried on Instagram? When was the last time somebody stopped in the middle of a dispute, a fight, a physical fight, and selfie? Let's put this out for everybody to see how jacked up we are. No, we get in community because God exposes those flaws, those dark spaces of hostility and resentment and bitterness that sometimes we aren't even aware of. God graciously gifts us the church to show us our faults. Not just so God can like get one on us or keep score or be like some kind of cosmic police officer, but so that God can bring healing into our lives. Because here's the thing, what affects you affects me. We're a body, right? Know what the New Testament says? We're a body. We're not just a bunch of individual spectators showing up to watch a sporting event. We are a body organically connected to one another. And so when there's sin in the body, we call that like unhealth. So think about your physical body. You ever had like referred pain in your body where like you got a nerve or something that's like all the way at your back, but it's like activating up in your shoulder. Doctors call that referred pain. That's what happens when there's conflict, an unresolved conflict in the body. There's referred pain. It's never just about you. Because here's the thing. If I don't go to you and I don't deal with you directly, you know what that means? Somebody else has to deal with you. If I don't deal with you, your problem becomes somebody else's problem. If you don't deal with me, my blind spot can injure and hurt somebody else. Like think, think about all the scandals that we're experiencing right now. What if 25 or 30 years ago, somebody would have had the courage to call out a Harvey Weinstein, right there on the spot. But because nobody dealt with it and everybody laughed about it because it's not a big deal because we live in a world of tolerance. You do you and I do me. Because nobody dealt with it then, all of these women are dealing with it now. If I don't deal with my children, that means you have to. They're gonna be your bosses one day. If I don't deal with my neighbor, that means you have to. You see what I'm talking about? Like, this is so important. If there's toxicity happening in one part of the body, it kills the life of the entire body. And so we must have the courage, believing in faith. That's why we confess with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Why do we have to put that that in the Apostles' Creed? Because we don't believe in forgiveness of sins. We don't naturally believe in it. We believe in punishment. We believe in people getting their due and their comeuppance. We believe in vengeance and revenge. We don't believe in the forgiveness of sin, so we have to repeat it to ourselves. I believe, right? Polar Express, I believe. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the power and the hope of love and redemption and reconciliation, even when it seems impossible. I believe by having the courage, by the grace of God to come and confront you that God can heal what's been broken and ruptured in this relationship. I mean, isn't that what Jesus did with us? 
I mean, any excuse that you can proffer here to say, well, because we all have an exemption. Every time I've done counseling with married couples or anybody that has some kind of a, a blind spot, we sit down and we, we talk through the Bible, Matthew 18, let's walk through this, let's talk about the sin, let's talk about the sin. Well, you don't understand, hey, I, 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 everybody, throw the flag. You don't understand, I have an exemption, she's crazy. He's a jerk, okay? Like, you don't understand what I'm living with. No, I do understand because I live with a jerk and I live with a liar and I live, you know, like, I, that is me. I, I understand because I am that. I understand crazy, believe it or not, because I am crazy. All of us are. And so any excuse, and I know it's hard because it's so emotional, it's so difficult. These are people that we live with that have hurt us deeply in many cases, wounded us deeply. And it doesn't seem like there's any hope. But every argument that you can make, here's the thing that always kills me. I want to get my argument together. I want to be an attorney. I want to get my argument together, I want to fashion it into a weapon, and then I just want to, you know, just like bring it at people. And every time I seek to do that, every argument that I can make against making peace with somebody, God turns that weapon back on me, and he cuts me, and he says, if I would have done that with you, you wouldn't be a child of God. Well, they're not worthy. Were you worthy? Was I worthy of God's grace? Well, they're hopeless. Did you have a lot of promise? You know, were you an A prospect, and an A recruit on God's team? Well, they'll just never turn. Well, I don't know. Did you look like you were going to turn when God came to you and he intervened with you and gave you his peace? Well, it's going to take a long time. Do you think it's not taking God a long time to continue to straighten out how jacked up you are? I mean, every single time I try to come up with an argument, God turns it and he says, no. Jesus came. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. He took up residence in a human body. He was present in the chaos, in the mess, with us. He disrupted our false peace by bringing God's truth into our lives, and he died for it. They killed him for it. That's what it takes to be a peacemaker. You don't bleed others, you're willing to bleed. It's the only way peace happens. So we go one-on-one, -on -one. and then we take others with us, he says. Sometimes it takes two or three or four people, not your buddies piling on somebody. This is not a team, tag team sport, you know, where you just invite others in the octagon to just pummel people. This is an objective third party to help mediate disputes. And then if that doesn't work, he says, you take it to the church. You tell it to the elders who engage them with the authority of, authority of Christ and who have the authority of Jesus to arbitrate and to mediate binding disputes and to create peace between warring parties. And sometimes you even have to go outside the church to do that. And then it says, finally, if they won't listen, if they won't heed, this cancer is so dangerous to the body, you must cut it out. Treat them like an unbeliever. Treat them like a tax collector. Because sometimes it's just not possible to have peace. Warn a divisive person once and then have nothing to do with them. Peace is hard. Peacemaking will be one of the hardest things that you do as a Christian, it will cost you your reputation. You will suffer. You will lose friends. But to be a son of God is to be a peacemaker. To be a peacemaker is to be a son of God. And can you imagine 
Like if the church really was that place. Isn't that what we long for? Isn't that why we're here? We all experience hostility in our lives and we're crazy enough to get up and drive slick roads with you know, negative wind chill temperatures to gather in here. For what? We want peace. We want to be at peace with God. We want to be at peace with ourselves. We want to be at peace with our neighbors. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're, we're resentful. We're bitter. But can you imagine if the church was a compelling community of peace, if we were the light of the world, we were God's beautiful people? I'll close with this quote from Stanley Hauerwas, who was, uh, is an author. He wrote a great book on peacemaking. He says, peacemaking is an act of imagination built on long habits of the resolution of differences. The great problem in the world is that our imagination has been stilled. Since it is not made a practice of confronting wrongs so that violence might be avoided. In truth, we must say that the church has too often failed the world by its failure to witness in our own life the kind of conflict necessary to be a community of peace. Without an example of a peacemaking community, the world has no alternative but to use violence as the means to settle disputes. Are we living, Soma, as sons of God, as peacemakers? Does your life reflect that this week? Mine doesn't. Actively pursuing peace, seeking to bring God's peace into hostile places and with hostile people that God's placed around me who need peace? Are we living as sons of God? Are we living as sons of the evil one? Gossiping, backbiting, hating, unforgiving, mean-spirited, unreconciling, not even having the courage to believe that God can still change people. What would it look like for you this week to take a step towards being a peacemaker? Maybe you need a new heart. I mean, all of us, like, we need God's grace. We need Jesus to be for us, to be with us, to walk with us in this journey. We need him to fill us with his peace to remove the hostility in us. We need surgery. We need God to cut out our heart of stone and to put in there a heart of flesh. By faith in Jesus alone, we can have that peace. We can be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Maybe for you, you have a new heart, but you've just never been taught. You don't have the skills. You lack the confidence because you lack the skills. You have no idea what it looks like to live as a peacemaker practically in your everyday life. And the Bible is full of wisdom on how to do this. That's why Jesus came to show us what it looks like to live as a community of peacemakers. But just remember this. You cannot be at peace with others if you're not at peace with God. And you cannot say you're at peace with God if you're not pursuing peace with others. Let's bow our heads. And I'm going to ask you, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, just to take, them, take some time to reflect and to confess to God the ways that rather than being a peacemaker, you've been a peace breaker or a peace faker. You don't have to think long and hard. Just think about the last 48 hours. And ask God to give you a new imagination, a new heart, new habits, a new way of being in the world that promotes the very thing that Jesus came to secure for us. He will always answer that prayer. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and his peace is your peace, we'd invite you in just a moment to come and receive communion. We have stations at the front, stations at the back. Take a piece of the bread, tear it off, and dip it into the cup. It's only in the body of Jesus broken for you, in the blood of Jesus shed for you, that you have peace lasting peace, deep peace, abiding peace that can never be taken away. If you're here and you're not in Christ, you have no peace. You may have prosperity. 
You may be advancing in your career. You may think that life's awesome, but you have no lasting peace. Those things you're looking to, to for peace will not satisfy. They will not last. They will fail you. So come to Jesus today and begin to think about what it might look like for you to surrender yourself, to lay down your arms, to come into the embrace of the God who promises you peace. I'm going to pray for us, and then you respond as God leads.